So begin our time of studying God's word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to this time where we consider what you would speak to us through your word, Lord, I pray that you would work through me to say the things that this your your people needs to hear. And Lord, that through the truth of your word, we would all be strengthened and ready to stand and to resist the attacks of Satan. Father, bless us now in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So this morning, we're going to be back in Ephesians chapter 6. I mentioned last week that we're going to spend a few Sundays in just a very short passage, a very famous passage in Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look again at verses 10 through 12 today. And then next week, we'll go into the, the... the most famous part of this passage, which is the armor of God in the in the following verses after that. But we're looking at as we end our study in the doctrine of worship or how we worship and why we worship and all of those different questions. I wanted to end by looking at the, the purpose or the end of worship. Where are we going or where is worship taking us? And so we're studying Sort of the doctrine of the last things or eschatology. How is what is God doing through his people in this world? And, and is there a purpose in it? What is that purpose and where are we going with this? And so we looked last week at the battle that is fought in the spiritual realm every day, every hour of every day, every minute of every day. I said several times last week that even now, as we sit here today and as I stand here today proclaiming God's Word, there are spiritual forces at work in our congregation, in the world around us, that are resisting and warring against the purposes of God. And so we saw, uh, last week we focused on the war and the warriors. Who are these spiritual forces against whom we as Christians are called to fight. And so now that we understand that these spiritual forces work against the glory of God and their ultimate goal is to take away the worship of the one true God and to turn our focus on other things, now we need to understand uh, not just who it is that we fight, but we need to ask what does the battle look like? What do we do when we fight against these spiritual forces that are set against Christ and His church? Now, unfortunately, much of what we know or what we envision about spiritual warfare doesn't come from the Bible, but from popular horror movies like The Exorcist. We tend to think of spiritual warfare as being this this physical thing, this actual physical presence of a spiritual being in the life of someone. Now, I will say it is true that evil does in times, at certain times, manifest itself in physical ways. In fact, I mentioned one of those uh, last Sunday as I shared the story of a, a man that we were witnessing to at the jail who became physically sick and had to run out because I believe we were sharing the gospel and Satan worked to keep him from hearing it. But Um, More times than not, though, Satan is at work in the small, ordinary things that we experience in this life. He is at work in the habits, the philosophies, the practices of this world. 
After all, I mean, it would be very easy to avoid the influence of the devil if he caused people all the time to turn green, levitate, and scream in otherworldly voices, right? I mean, we would know that's the devil. We need to walk around that. You know, it wouldn't be that hard to avoid. But this morning, I want uh, us to understand how Satan fights and how we fight against him by studying again Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. So let's read this passage together again as we consider the battle that we fight. Starting in verse 10, God's word says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic forces over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there are three actions from this passage that I want to focus on today. Three verbs that Paul uses to say what Christians should do in fighting this spiritual battle. Um, So he tells Christians that they should be strong, that they should stand, and that they should wrestle. So let's look at those three things, those three actions, as we break down this passage today. First, Paul says in verse 10 that we should be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now that phrase, to be strong, that is used here is used throughout the New Testament and it's always used to refer to someone being strong in the faith. So for example, Paul charges Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1 to be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So first, understand, brothers and sisters, that the battle we wage against Satan is a battle of faith. One of Satan's primary strategies in his battle against God is to deceive unbelievers and to distract believers by warring against the gospel. So as we saw last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers that they cannot see the truth of the gospel. This is why we need to, as a church, we need to bathe every evangelistic effort that we make, every missions effort that we support, every individual effort we make to share the gospel. We need to bathe every effort of proclaiming the gospel in prayer. We need to pray. If you're going to share the gospel with your next door neighbor or in the midst of that effort to share the gospel with your next door neighbor, you need to pray that the Lord would bind Satan and that he would open the hearts and minds of those that you speak to. As I mentioned, when we pray for October 31st in our fall festival, if we're going to preach the gospel there, we need to pray that God would bind Satan and that he would open the hearts and minds of those who are there to hear the gospel. If we make a move, and I've seen this in my own personal life, I've seen it in my own ministry, if we make a move to share the gospel, Satan will inevitably rise up to resist it. He will sow dissension, he will make it inconvenient, and he will disrupt in any way that he can. Not only 
Will Satan fight to keep unbelievers from hearing the gospel, but he will also distract believers from the certainty of the gospel. So 2 John verses 7 and 8 warns that Satan will send out many deceivers and their goal is to keep us from the hope of the gospel message, to distract us from the hope of the gospel message. Satan's strategy for the church is to make us ineffective in the work of the Lord. And he does this in two ways. One way is to raise up false teachers who distort the gospel. And now there are far too many false teachings for me to just delineate what they are here in this sermon. But let me give you an, uh, what I think is an easy measure, a good measure to judge false teachings by. If a, false te- if a teacher or a teaching brings in, uh, brings in a fresh word or a new concept, and that concept either diminishes or eliminates the importance of Jesus or the importance of the glory of God, then it is very likely a false teaching. In other words, if the teaching focuses on some small concern of the church or on on some small section of Scripture, and that's all the teacher talks about and all he wants to teach, and, and and that teaching takes away from the main focus of the gospel of Jesus Christ or the glory of God, then it's probably a false teaching and we need to avoid it. If you get hung up on, some, on the same subject all the time and all you can talk about is end time speculation or cultural concerns or a preoccupation with even a preoccupation with spiritual warfare, but you rarely, if ever, talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of God, then you may be deceived and distracted by Satan and not following the heart of the gospel. Another test that you could give, and it's an easier test even than that, and that is, does the teaching draw you to closer worship of the one true God, or does it distract you from it? Does, for example, a lot of people like to talk about incessantly about end times prophecies and things like that. And what you'll find in those teachings is they focus more on the Antichrist than they do on Christ. They focus more on when it'll happen than who's going to make it happen. They focus more on the damnation of the unbeliever than the glory of Christ in His return. If we focus on the minuscule things, the lower, lesser things of a doctrine, and we don't focus on the reason for it, which is the glory of God and the worship of His Son, then we are being distracted by errant or false teaching. And we need to be careful that we don't get distracted by that. Another way Satan distracts the church from the gospel is through personal or congregational sin. Now, I heard this statement once uh, uh, about the ways that Satan lies to a woman when she's considering abortion. And I think it applies more broadly to all sin. And the saying goes like this. Satan tells a woman going into an abortion clinic that there is no sin. And on coming out of an abortion clinic that there is no forgiveness. Satan will convince an individual or a church that there is no sin. 
There's no need to worry about purity or holiness or being disciplined or practicing faithfulness to Scripture. And then when that individual or that church falls into the sin, he convinces them that there is no hope for redemption. There is no hope for forgiveness. You are ruined. He will use the shame and the guilt of that sin to keep them from faithfully walking in the gospel. So against these attacks of Satan, Paul gives one simple command. We are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The way to defeat the attacks of Satan against our faith is to trust even more so in the gospel message. There's a beautiful new hymn that I really like called Before the Throne of God Above. And it gets at this this need that we have to come back to the gospel. It says, one of the verses of it says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. The way that we remain strong in the Lord is to rest in what Christ has done for us. If you feel guilt of sin bearing down on you, if you feel that there is no way that you could ever be worthy, if you feel that you cannot share the gospel because you have a tainted past, remember the gospel. Remember that Christ did not die for you because you were pure or worthy or holy. He died for you because you were a sinner in need of salvation. And there is nothing in this world that can keep you from the glory of God because the one glorious Son of God died for your sins so that you might be right with Him. Do not get mired down in the guilt and the shame of your past. Even do not get mired down in the guilt and the shame of the sin that you keep seeming to come back to. But instead, look to Christ and what He has done and trust Him and know that you are forgiven. The second action that Paul gives us for this battle against Satan is to stand. Notice verse 11 again. He says in verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now Paul is moving into an analogy that he's going to use throughout the rest of these verses that we're going to study. And he ends that analogy actually in verse 20, in which he compares every Christian to a Roman soldier. And that word stand there has a direct relationship to the way that Romans fought their battles. The Romans didn't train every soldier to fight as an individual like we do today. Instead, the, the Romans trained their soldiers to fight as one. And what they would do is they would give each soldier a shield that looked a lot like our riot shields that our police use now. It's a kind of a half-body shield that they could kind of set on the ground. And they would give them a sword. And they were trained to stand in what is called a phalanx. Now, a phalanx is a V-shaped formation where every soldier would take his shield and he would lock it 
against the soldier beside him. And they, they would stand locked together in one wall that looked like a human spear. And it was designed to be just that, to be a spear that would walk into the army, the enemy lines in unison. And as they locked their shields together in unison, a captain would call out a command and the soldiers would take one step forward. And then they would take another step forward. And as the enemy would make assaults against them, the soldiers would dig in with their cleated shoes and they would stand firm against the cavalry, the spears, the arrows, or whatever else the enemy might throw their way. And then they would take another step. And step by step, they would resist each attack and move forward until they had taken the whole field. By uh, contrast, they would not rush. They would not charge. But they would slowly step across the field of battle. In the same way, each individual Christian, according to Paul, is a soldier in the army of God. And we each are called to stand. Now you might be wondering, what is it that we do When we stand, how do we stand? Now, some have proposed that the way that we stand is to take political action by voting or by uh, voting our moral consciences and things like that. And I think, don't get me wrong, I think we ought to vote our conscience. We ought to take a political stand. But that is not at all, actually, what Paul has in view here for what the Christian should do. Rather, what Paul is calling us to do is what he has already told us to do in the book of Ephesians. So if you think back to what we've already studied in this uh, sermon series on worship, remember we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, and in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul told us that we should be in unity within the body of Christ. He told us that we should be united around one Lord, one faith, one baptism, He told us that we should use our gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. So we stand, we stand against the attacks of Satan by being bound together. Just like a Roman phalanx is ineffective if the individual soldiers go their own way and all start fighting against each other, so too the church is ineffective if there is disunity. Second, Paul has already told us in chapter 5 to live in submission to one another. We are to do that that in every aspect of our lives. We are to submit to one another in the church. We are to submit to one another in our marriage relationships, in our family, in our lives out in the world. Brothers and sisters, I know this sounds strange and I know it's not going to sound strange initially, but when I get into this, it's going to sound strange because it sounds strange, strange to me, but our primary way of resisting Satan is to live differently from this world. Right. Our primary way right. to resist the attacks of Satan and to fight against him is to, resist, is to live differently than this world. The world says that we gain influence through power. But the gospel says 
that we gain influence through submission. Jesus taught this very thing in his ministry. He says that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. The first are not the greatest in the kingdom, but the last are. The meek inherit the earth. The widow and her two pence gave the most. The master washes the feet of his servants. And the king dies for his people. So we overcome our enemies by loving them. We change culture by being a light in this dark world. By living in peace and unity while the world outside of us rages and divides. Notice, these things aren't done by changing government policies or through a vote. They are done by each one of us living out our faith in this world. The problem I see with our, the, the recent efforts by Christian leadership to pursue political power regardless of where, where it might take us morally is that we think that we put all of our hopes and our efforts in that one thing and we forget that each one of us is called to live in obedience to Christ. We think that if we just put the right people in place, if we just have the right policies, then all of this will go away and it'll be a better world. But we continue to live as if Christ does not reign over our own lives Monday through Saturday. If we want to impact this world for Christ, the clearest, easiest, most effective way to do that is to live faithfully for Christ in our daily lives. Amen. That is the way we change the world. And so that is the way that we stand. Finally, in verse 12, Paul says that we fight against Satan. Uh, our fight against Satan is akin to wrestling. Notice he says, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities. Now that word for wrestle there means literally hand-to-hand combat. So Paul compares the fight against Satan to a grudge match, to a hand-to-hand combat, to close and personal fighting. Now, it's hard and it's a daily struggle. This means that the fight against Satan is a fight for every single Christian. Satan does not fight by air campaigns or by bombardments, but by bloody trench warfare. I take this to mean that we fight in the smallest of things that we do. Every act of good that we do for our neighbor is a slash of the knife against the powers of this world. Every cup of water that we give to the needy is sand in the eye of our enemy. Every time we tell someone about Jesus, it is a stab through the heart of the evil one. Now I know there are times when our small acts of kindness, our good that we do in this world seem like a drop in the ocean of wickedness in this world. But just imagine, just to continue the analogy of a Roman soldier, just imagine how one Roman soldier would feel as his friends drop around him and as he feels the pressure of the enemy bearing down on his shield as he marches in that phalanx. 
He may be tempted to think that his army is losing the battle. But what he cannot see is the whole picture. He cannot see that though his battalion is feeling the heat of the fight, his army is winning. In the same way, our small acts, no matter how insignificant they may seem, add to the battle. And I've read the end of the story, brothers and sisters. Not to spoil it for you, but God wins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and for the assurance we have that You win and that Your power, He that is within us, is greater than He that is in the world. So Lord, I pray that we would be faithful in our own Christian lives to stand. Lord, that we would stand in our family life as we seek to faithfully raise our children in the admonition of the Lord. May we stand in our marriages as we seek to faithfully uh, lead our, our spouses in the way of the Lord. Lord, may we be faithful in our church as we use our gifts and talents for the furthering of your kingdom and for the building up of your saints. May we be united seeking to further the gospel message around this world and in our community. Lord, may we not allow the distractions of false teachings or our own sin to keep us from the mission that you have given us. Lord, may we repent and walk in newness of life as we seek to walk as a soldier in the army of God, standing firm and taking one step forward and trusting that your end is good, regardless of how hot the battle gets in our own personal lives. Father, bless us as we respond to your gospel. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.